You're listening to Virtual Sentiments. I'm your host, Kristen Collins, and I'm excited to share this conversation with you. In this episode, I talked to Ted Lechterman, a philosopher at IE University. Ted's first book was on philanthropy and democracy. He also works on the ethics of AI. In an earlier episode with computer scientist Leilani Gilpin, we discussed her work on the technical and ethical challenges in building AI technologies, such as autonomous vehicles. And this conversation with Ted revisits those types of questions about safety, responsibility, and democracy, but from the perspective of political philosophy. So we also talk about what philosophers and political theorists mean when we talk about democracy, the different reasons that we might value it as a method of decision making, and the different ways that AI might undermine or conversely support democracy. I hope you enjoy the episode. We're talking to Dr. Ted Lechterman, a assistant professor in philosophy at IE University and previously a research fellow at the Institute for Ethics in AI at Oxford. He is the author of The Tyranny of Generosity, Why Philanthropy Corrupts Our Politics and How We Can Fix It. And he, in addition to his ongoing research in philanthropy and democracy, he works on the ethics and politics of artificial intelligence. Thanks for talking to us today at TED. Thank you so much for having me, Kristen. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, so I wanted to start us off uh, by asking you a little bit about your first book on philanthropy. Uh, and my understanding is that your argument here is that philanthropy and other kinds of benevolent social projects uh, can actually undermine democracy. So would you mind starting us off with a little bit about this work and how it might connect or influence the work you are also doing on the ethics and politics of artificial intelligence? Sure. Um, I guess one way to think about my work on philanthropy is as an exercise or an investigation in some of the dark sides of virtue. Um, there are many sort of pro-social or benevolent social practices um, that, you know, of which philanthropy is a particularly obvious example, um, that also can be exercises of power, power that can be used for good and for bad. Um, but the mere fact that something is an exercise of power, I think, prompts um, certain kinds of normative questions. Um, is it sufficient when evaluating an exercise of power that it's performed with good intentions um, or that it has um, good results? Um, or are there other questions we want to ask um, when evaluating exercises of power? So what got me interested, especially in philanthropy, was noticing some ways in which philanthropy could threaten aspects of the democratic ideal. Um, it can be ways of privatizing certain kinds of um, practices or production or distribution of goods, um, which we may have reasons to provide publicly um, for various reasons. Um, and the question, one question prompted there is, well, which kinds of goods uh, or which kinds of things um, should we want to do collectively on democratic terms? 
um, and which kinds of things or which kinds of practices um, or what kinds of goods um, uh, should we prefer or, or be okay with delegating to private actors. Um, so that was one of the sort of main inspirations for the book. Um, I explored different dimensions of that question um, and different applications um, of those questions, you know, whether we're talking about uh, philanthropy conducted by um, well, dead people, uh, many philanthropists, many, many foundations um, represent the wishes of the dead, uh, which can prejudice the interests of the living and unborn. Um, I also explore the ethics of corporate philanthropy, um, whether uh, philanthropy is something that we should ask of corporations or whether we should be skeptical of corporate philanthropy in certain ways or what guidelines we should seek to put around it. Um, and yes, there's also a, a discussion of the effect of altruism movement in my book, um, focusing specifically on um, philanthropy to solve or address uh, severe global poverty. So, but your question was, how does this relate to my, my work on AI? Um, um, so um, I think, you know, the work on philanthropy prompted me to think about ways in which um, power can be delegated to private actors. Um, and as I was working on this project, this was also sort of at the time where um, AI and related technologies were becoming more prevalent in public discussions. Um, and the possibilities of using AI and related technologies for um, various public purposes, I think, was becoming better understood and, um, and more prevalent. Um, and it occurred to me that you know, privatization might be part of a broader category of ways of, of delegating power um, uh, to different entities or different processes. So I see sort of delegation and if you want to say automation or artificialization, that's a horrible word, um, but I think automation doesn't quite get at the phenomenon that we're that we're interested in here. But again, what, what kinds of powers or practices uh, or functions should we as societies want to delegate to artificial agents? Um, and what kinds of goods, practices, functions, and so on should we want to maintain or um, uh, yeah, should we want to maintain um, for, for uh, governments or for democratic societies or for humans? Um, uh, yeah. No, I think that's great. I, I think I think I totally see the connection between the idea of power being delegated or sometimes usurped or supplanted by uh, private actors. Um, and at the same time, the idea that that is also now happening with artificial intelligence. Um, and often, I think with that, you get into a lot of thorny kind of biases, honestly, that we have, which is that technologies might be in some way superior to human judgments um, but by being free of bias, by being more objective, by having this kind of quantitative um, backing to the de decisions that are made. Um, but I think, you know, there's, of course, and we've talked about a little bit in, in some of our other interviews about the issues with those types of visions of AI. Um, and, and would you mind sharing a little bit about, you know, what we should be thinking about the idea of when we delegate to artificial intelligence, maybe the technological, but also the kind of social and economic challenges involved in 
in delegating power in that way? You know, why should we be hesitant? What, what should we be thinking about when we think about how AI might uh, be used as a, as a tool for power? Sure. Um, yeah, we can think about some of the trade-offs involved. Um, so just maybe to make this a bit more concrete, um, something I've been thinking about specifically is, is which kinds of elements of the political process or uh, government functions we should be willing to automate in some way using, using AI um, and some of the, the trade-offs involved um, in these kinds of decisions um, or design choices. Um, so um, I think there are good reasons to think that, I mean, let, let's just focus on the sort of extreme case of replacing, replacing democratic politics with, um, with an algocrat. Um, some form of super intelligent AI that has access to uh, lots and lots of data um, and can, can legislate and make executive decisions about political life without direct human input. Um, I think that's a really good um, case for thinking about the value of democracy and human control more generally. Um, so I think there's good reason to believe that, that such a system um, could be uh, wiser um, than humans singly and collectively. Um, it could certainly um, do away with certain cognitive biases um, that humans are prone to um, and uh, biases of other kinds. Um, I think, you know, such an algocrat would be less likely maybe to be racist um, uh, or sexist um, um, or have, have biases of other kinds. I mean, its computational ability would be tremendous. Um, and um, presumably it would be able to, to produce outcomes um, that uh, human beings singly or, or collectively would simply just be unable to achieve. Um, but I think, you know, what this example also brings out is that there would be uh, uh, certain kinds of deficiencies. Um, if you, you know, just imagine your intuitive reactions to such a scenario, um, at least I have the intuitive reaction that something would be lost. Um, and I think, you know, part of what's lost in this scenario is, um, is control. Um, and there are various different ways of getting at, you know, th this intuition, whether we want to call it control, whether we want to call it autonomy, whether we want to call it self-determination or collective self-determination. I think there's, there's something essential about politics and about democracy that involves us making decisions about our own lives. Um, and when we automate, uh, at least in the way that I'm describing, and I think this carries over to other scenarios, we are giving up a certain amount of opportunity to control our own lives. We may make worse decisions when we have that control, um, but something important, I think, is lost. Um, it, and I think there are various aspects um, to, to that loss. Um, there's probably some expressive value um, in, in being the author of your own life. Uh, there's, a, I think, a sense of security um, that also comes with, with, uh, with being a self-author. There are educative effects of being a self-author. Um, and maybe sort of all of these things plus more together help, help fill out what's valuable about um, about self-control and about collective self-control, which 
which I do think we lose um, when we automate certain things. And we do have to weigh in any particular automation decision how valuable um, this, this form of autonomy or self-control or self-determination is in comparison to the benefits that automation offers. Um, and so I don't have fully, fully worked out views on this topic, but I think you know there might be certain kinds that we could call them high stakes decisions. Um, either they're high stakes because they involve life or death issues, matters of basic justice, um, or they involve you know, central aspects of ourselves. Um, and, and for these reasons, there are certain things we'd like to preserve for, for human judgment. Um, and other things which are more mundane, um, more routine um, that we should be willing to, to automate. Um, and certainly, I mean, I think both with AI and with philanthropy and other topics that I work on, I, although I sort of come at these issues skeptically, I'm, I'm also not, not cynical um, and I'm not a Luddite. I do see the, both the value of certain forms of privatization and automation. And I think, you know, these can and should be leveraged um, for, the, for the tremendous benefits that they offer. Um, but of course, critically um, and, and, you know, with, with very strong sensitivity to the risks and trade-offs. I really appreciate that. And I, I think that you great uh, give a really great example and get into the kind of dilemmas that we're talking about here. Because what I appreciate about your example is also that, um, and I think this is something that I appreciate about a lot of uh, philosophers, is a willingness to imagine Okay, well, because a lot of the current debates are about um, the quality of automated decision making and artificial intelligence and how often uh, there are still biases uh, and problems involved that the, the that epistem like the sort of epistem epistemic benefits are still limited. Um, mm -hmm. But when we're thinking about the ethics and politics of these technologies and how they might become adopted and implemented in our uh, policy making, uh, we have to also think about sort of a, a bigger picture here, that what if you could assume that the technologies did everything so well that you solved the technical issues um, and they actually were truly uh, epistemically advantaged over uh, a human being's uh, cognitive judgments? You still, that doesn't actually solve the problem. And, and as you've put it, um, because part of the problem isn't just the quality of governance, um, and it's not just the um, epistemic, the limits of our knowledge and our judgment. Uh, it's also the idea that democracy reflects and facilitates something very important about a sense of self-control and autonomy. Uh, and that understood as in both an individual way, as an individual person having uh, certain control over her life, but then also as a community having a collective uh, sovereignty together and being able to make these decisions together as equal members of that community. I want to backtrack a little bit um, and sort of ask you about the different ways that people both in academia but also in the public might conceptualize democracy. What makes an institution democratic or political community democratic and um how are the different ways that democracy can be defended? Sure. Um, well, let, let's start with, with defining our terms here. So when we talk about democracy, what are we talking about? Um, I think a, a plausible working definition of democracy is um, some sort of uh, decision procedure for collective decision making 
um, where members of the procedure are, are treated as equals in some way. Um, so that's a pretty flexible definition, leaves open, you know, what we're applying this decision to, whether we're talking and, and what the sort of uh, locus of decision making is. Are we talking about a family? Are we talking about a club? Are we talking about a polity uh, or a corporation? Um, and any, any group um, could be a setting for democratic decision-making. And that definition also leaves open in what way participants or members or subjects um, are treated as equals. Um, do they have equal opportunities to participate? That's one, one common um, conception, um, getting closer to a conception there, I think, of democracy. But democracy could also mean that people's interests are taken into account um, in, in some equal way, um, regardless of whether they're, they're participants in the process itself. Um, so, and, and then, you know, there are, of course, different institutional designs, different ways of, of implementing such a system in practice, um, and different theories about what makes this practice um, or this process valuable uh, or superior um, or legitimate. Um, and I think it's, it's safe to say that um, among political theorists and philosophers um, you know, working today, there's a um, very strong consensus that democracy is the most legitimate way of making collective decisions that have a coercive element to them, that are coercively enforced. Um, so mainly we're talking about you know, governments, um, that you know, democratic governments have a, a special normative quality that other governments lack. Um, and there's been a lot of debate recently in particular about why that is. Um, so it's possible that the most common answer given to the question of what gives democracy its, its specific legitimacy or authority um, is an instrumental argument that democratic systems tend over the long term to get better results um, than other systems. Um, people disagree about you know, what makes results good. Um, uh, you know, democracy tends to lead to greater peace and stability than other um, governmental systems. It tends to uh, produce better economic outcomes, higher GDP. Um, democracies tend to have less human rights abuses than other forms of state. Um, so you could say maybe that democracies tend towards juster outcomes overall. Um, so there are lots of people think that, who think that democracy is valuable in virtue of the results that it produces. Um, there's another school of thought that says, um, yes, democracies tend to generate good, good results. And if they didn't generate good results, you know, that would be a reason for, for um, switching to another system. But that's not all, um, that there are other elements um, to democratic systems um, that um, help to explain their specific traction, attractions. Um, a particularly common view in the past few years um, is something like a social equality view, um, that um, because democracy distributes power equally, um, it allows us to stand in relationships of social equality, and it contributes um, to the realization of an ideal of social equality, which is um, especially valuable for human beings or beings like us who, who 
think of one another as moral equals, um, and that any other system necessarily awards a differential amount of power to different people. Um, and this is uh, something that's very difficult to reconcile with the sort of fundamental enlightenment ideal of the moral equality of persons. Um, so oligarchies, dictatorships, and so on necessarily involve giving a, a subset of the population more power than others. And this is just uh, very difficult to justify no matter what the, what the outcomes are. I think some, I really appreciated that definition of democracy. Um, and I, I want to kind of add in the nuance here that democracy can mean, and often when political theorists and philosophers are talking about the unique legitimacy of democracy, we include within that definition uh, constitutional constraints on government power. So why are such constraints a part of and can be a part of many definitions of democracy? Yeah, so when I, when I started giving a working definition of democracy, I said that it's, um, it's a collective decision-making procedure um, where participants or subjects of that, of that procedure are treated as equals in some way. Um, so I think that leaves open and is compatible with um, the idea that there are certain limitations um, to the scope. Um, of, of this decision-making. It doesn't necessarily mean that the, the members or participants of this system or this process have unlimited control um, and that there are no other um, uh, aspects to the decision-making process. So it's, it's completely compatible with um, sort of Republican separation of powers, um, which has you know separate functions for judiciary, executive, and uh, and legislative, um, and I think it's completely compatible with the idea of um, constitutional protections for certain um, human rights. Um, I think it's it's a mistake to think of democracy as synonymous with unlimited popular rule, though that is of course you know one potential conception. Of democracy, and there are good and, and bad reasons um, uh, for preferring, um, you know, that form of government as well. Well, I do think, um, you know, we talked a little bit in another episode about autonomous vehicles, and I think mm -hmm. that those are a good example of and something that people are thinking a lot about because, especially, I think you can't totally separate it from our current. Uh, environment, which is that vehicle accidents are a major fatality cause of fatalities in the U.S. Um, and so often the arguments for uh, self-driving cars are often that it will eliminate human error, which is a source of um, a source of, of, of death currently. Um, but at the same time, these are being developed by private companies, so they are making decisions about, and I think you talked about this a little bit uh, in some of your public writing, about you know how do you assess, how does a car react to a pedestrian um, that is in a, in a crosswalk unexpectedly? Um, and and potential, you know, what do you do there? And then also who is responsible for that resulting accident. Um, and that is a third party. You know, there's plenty of people who don't own cars, um, who, who won't own cars, who are going to be impacted by both, you know, human drivers and self-driving cars as well. Um, and, uh, sorry, to, to kind of draw that out, and just because this is when I talk with my students about this, um, there's a whole infrastructure around our world, which has been decided 
both by private actors, but also public actors in terms of creating the conditions for traffic ac- accidents as well. So as much as there is human error, we do have to ask about, you know, how road safety and design and how that shapes uh, walkability and safety of pedestrians and cyclists and other people in society and not just those in cars. I think that's a great example. So, I mean, historically, um, societies have thought that transportation policy is sort of a critical public function. Um, it's the kind of thing that we all have an interest um, in in um, having a say about. We all have an interest in what happens on the road because we all use the road um, or are affected by what happens on the road in various ways. Um, and now, you know, we have uh, an interesting um, and potentially, you know, beneficial form of technology um, that uh, could change transportation in, in various ways, um, maybe largely for the better. Um, but there are, of course, various trade-offs involved and various questions about how the both good and bad effects of this technology are distributed. Um, and so one question that, that occurs to me with self-driving cars is, you know, who should decide um, all of the various policy questions involving um, this new technology? Um, or how, how should you know, the different um, policy choices be distributed or delegated to you know, different kinds of stakeholders? Um, and I think what I've, what I've noticed in the past few years is that most of these decisions are just being made by the car companies themselves. So they're deciding um, how to program the algorithms to decide whether you know, to run over um, a cyclist um, or uh, swerve and you know, uh, pound the car into a concrete divider um, and you know, various other kinds of decisions about crash optimization um, as well as route optimization. So should the car take the fastest route to get to the airport, even though this means driving through um, an underprivileged community and subjecting that community to greater congestion, um, noise pollution, um, all of the various hazards um, of, you know, of, of driving? Um, or should it take maybe a longer route uh, that you know, takes the interests of this community into account, but maybe is less convenient for the passengers? Um, you know, these are also questions that I think currently are being made by, by the autonomous car developers. Um, um, and maybe these are the kinds of things that um, uh, the public should be you know, uh, having some kind of influence over instead. Um, so it's interesting. There have been a, a variety of, of different um, ideas circulating in, in ethics and political philosophy about you know, how to make um, self-driving car policy or transportation policy more participatory in various ways. Um, but I think lots of them um, are, are failing to see the issue in, well, for, in the way that I see it, which I think is, is the true way. <laughs> um, which is, you know, the, the importance here is, is making sure that, you know, all of the various stakeholders in these kinds of decisions have appropriate opportunities for, um, for, for having an influence. You know, I think this does, these, all this talk about kind of democratic deliberation brings us a little bit to your uh, discussions of effective altruism and long-termism, which have been recently uh, much more popular topics of discussion in public debates um, and specifically tied to Silicon Valley in that there are um, billionaire philanthropists who are related to um, different uh, facets of tech 
um, who are supporting these movements. So uh, would you mind kind of giving some of your thoughts on on that and how uh, thinking about kind of the way that this philosophical movement of effective altruism has gained traction among uh, those social circles, what that means for the way that we think about both philanthropy and tech uh, and their democratic consequences? Sure, um, I, I can try. So, um, so just to, just as a sidebar, I, I don't necessarily consider myself an, an expert on on the long termism turn um, in effective altruism, um, but I think um, you know from from what I do understand, there there's a movement um, with largely sort of parallel to or. Um, maybe coming out of effective altruism, which says we should be paying much more attention to events um, in the long-term future than we characteristically do. Um, and that's for a variety of reasons, one of which is because there are likely to be many more people living between now and the end of time than have previously lived and who live now. Um, and the things that we do now can have a tremendous consequence um, for those people, um, for whether their lives are good or bad, whether they have a planet to, to live in that's habitable, um, and so on. Um, and so I think what I take away from, from you know, this shift in perspective, which is positive, uh, is that you know, we should be thinking about our effects on future generations much more than we have been. We've been sort of characteristically biased towards the present and to some extent the past in much of our sort of moral and political thought and practice. Um, so I, I think that's salutary. Um, but then there's a question about, well, how much should we weigh the interests of the future against the interests of the present um, or even the past in certain circumstances? And there are some people within the effective altruism movement um, um, or adjacent to it who say or believe um, that we should give more or less infinite weight um, to the long-term future. Um, in various ways and completely or largely discount um, the interests of people who are living now. Um, and I think that's probably an idea that needs to be subjected to scrutiny. Um, there are at least some good reasons to uh, give a certain amount of preference to the interests of people who are living now and soon um, to the long-term future. One of which is that we are in ongoing uh, relationships uh, with our sort of co-generationalists um, and near-generationalists in a way that we're not with possibly future existing people. So we mutually subject one another to coercive institutions and economic practices and actively shape one another's lives, um, which can ground you know, certain duties um, of uh, fairness or rectification or assistance. Um, that we might not necessarily have in the same way or to the same extent um, with uh, possibly or possibly existing future people um, or, or probably existing future people. You know, one reason to be skeptical of, of at least the implementation or uptake of long-termist ideas is that they um, are sort of convenient uh, for you know certain segments of society, um, which you know have sort of vested interests in 
um, sort of, I don't know, futuristic thinking um, or technocracy. Um, you know, I, I think often what comes up in sort of long-term debates is that you know, democracies are particularly bad at looking after the interests of the long-term future. Um, democracies tend to have a presentist bias or even a sort of myopic bias where, you know, we're only concerned about, you know, how our own lives are going. Future people are not represented officially in democratic processes. They're only represented to the extent that, you know, we think about them and actively, you know, represent their interests, you know, when we're voting or participating in other aspects of the democratic process. So, um, I think you know if, if you were already skeptical about democracy for other reasons, uh, this can create more skepticism about democracy and further license sort of alternative ways of making decisions. Um, you know whether that's through philanthropy, whether that's through entrepreneurship, um, and I think you know there are various you know philanthropists and entrepreneurs who. Um, are pretty well convinced of you know their own judgment and um, sort of uh, when it comes to you know what humanity needs um, and so a, a view like long termism can sort of feed into uh, that worldview and you know further justify you know certain forms of private authority. Yeah, and I think um, it gets at what is a major question and issue um, the kind of line that can be hard to draw between a pol you know approaches or you know ways of approaching these ethical dilemmas um, both for current populations and for future populations uh, where the line is drawn between uh, support and care um, and paternalism and control um, and so I think kind of your explanation of long-termism showed there the idea that, even though there might, there are certainly benefits to um, thinking more critically about, um, you know, future uh, concerns and and being less presentist or less myopic in our thinking. There is also a need to not neglect um, how much we are already interacting with and already influencing the lives of other people, um, both close to us uh, and physically across the world. And that, you know, what are your obligations to and how are these policies um, potentially paternalistic in those in that sense, too, to those populations as well? So I really appreciate um, that you've allowed us to get into some of the major challenges of um, thinking about technology and its effects on democracy. Um, but I understand that you also have some thoughts on how technology can actually help facilitate um, democratic life. Uh, would you mind walking us through some of those ideas? Uh, yes, I'd be glad to. Um, so, I mean, there are a variety of ways that people are thinking and, and experimenting um, about and with uh, various forms of AI to enhance democratic and deliberative processes in various ways. Um, so some people are, are working on um, using AI to help people navigate um, feedback processes. Um, so common scenarios, an administrative agency asks citizens to provide comments on a proposed rule or rule change. Um, people 
typically write in, you know, thousands of different comments. Um, it's hard to know what's been said before, know, you know, whether you agree or disagree with any of these things. And if you comment, maybe you're just adding something um, that somebody else has already said. Um, AI can be used to help sort of organize this process a little bit better to help help you see you know, what's already been said, how uh, responses are clustering, whether you want to join uh, a, a particular train of thought or add, you know, upvote um, a, a particular um, response uh, to a policy proposal or rule change, um, and in various ways sort of better organize uh, processes of sort of note and comment. Um, that you know is, is applied by many different kinds of, of government agency. Um, so I've been interested um, personally in a slightly different use of, of sort of democracy and enhancing AI, um, which is called the democracy bot, um, which is using um, AI to uh, promote various aspects uh, or improve various aspects of democratic citizenship. So it's possible, at least theoretically, um, to use AI as um, moral and political advisors for citizens. Um, so imagine you know, having um, an app, um, which is a sophisticated AI model, which takes certain inputs that you give it um, uh, about you and about your beliefs, um, and then helps you uh, appraise, reevaluate, and reflect on those beliefs. Um, to determine sort of uh, a stronger sense of your political convictions and a more sort of fully worked out um, set of, of political views and preferences, maybe on areas which you haven't thought about before. Um, so it can sort of extend your mind in various ways. Um, it can also challenge you to determine sort of the consistency of your political beliefs and compare your beliefs to externally verifiable facts, um, as well as compare you know, your beliefs with the beliefs of people like you, different peers who are connected to you in some relevant way. So that's sort of the, the first step you know, of you know, using, using AI as a way of you know, further reflecting, of educating ourselves as citizens, um, and further fleshing out our views on issues we haven't thought about before or don't have time to think about. Um, I think you know, one of the benefits of this form of technology is that there are thousands uh, and thousands of laws debated and passed every day, but you know, because we have busy lives uh, for good reasons, we're doing other important things. We don't have the time to think about every possible issue. Many issues are you know, very technically complex, um, but you know, harnessing the power of AI could give us an opportunity to have kind of sensible opinions uh, about many of the things that are debated and passed every day. Um, and when there are opportunities for us to register our preferences about these things, um, our democracy bot could help us do so. So, you know, you can imagine a government agency asking for feedback on a thousand different, you know, policy proposals or changes. Um, and then in an instant, your bot, having developed a fully, you know, robust um, profile of your political views, could then transmit your views on all of these policy questions um, and provide sort of rich and, um, 
and well-grounded feedback um, on important rule changes. Um, you could use your bot to sign all of the relevant change.org petitions that are out there um, you know, vying for your support. Um, and so I think you know, this is an interesting thought experiment and, and worth thinking about potential applications, potential trade-offs, potential drawbacks um, of you know, using something like this. Um, and of course, um, so I'm skeptical of completely automating democratic citizenship. There are some people who advocate, for instance, replacing parliamentary representatives um, with something like I'm describing. Um, by just using bots that represent our interests and negotiate with other bots. Um, some people think that you know, we, can, we can do away with representative government and realize um, uh, direct democracy in its purest form. I'm, I'm skeptical of this, um, uh, but I think you know, there are certain potential positive uses of this technology and also trade-offs to be weighed, like potential losses of deliberation, um, potential losses of the human and social elements um, to, um, to political decision-making. Um, but yeah, this is, uh, this is an active area um, of research for me, and I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, no, that sounds fascinating. Um, and I really, you know, I appreciate, again, a lot of nuance, which is always great. Um, but I think it's true that I think imagining uh, more democratic visions that actually, you know, see the possibilities of using um, artificial intelligence and other digital technologies to enhance democracy um, and also enhance our own lives and our own judgment is very promising. And you can do that without, and as you said, you can still be very sensitive to the drawbacks, the trade-offs. But I think also part of what that gets back to in terms of what we've been talking about is um, really embracing uh, the democratic and pluralistic nature of our society, where um, I think people who are not necessarily, um, you know, benefiting from <laughs> rounds of VC funding um, can still think about um, the possibilities here and maybe shape some of those ideas, too. Um, so I really appreciate that. And and also, actually, I'll just say, I mean, I really like this idea it's very striking, and I hadn't really um, seen anything like that uh, about the idea of like a democratic bot who's almost like a mirror self uh, of ourselves um, that can help us refine or deliberate on our own judgments and beliefs. Um, and it actually really reminds me of Adam Smith's notion of the impartial spectator, um, mm -hmm. which I work on. And of course, there's a lot of questions with that too, you know, is the impartial spectator, which is this model of kind of the conscience uh, within us, you know, how much is that shaped by our society around us, social norms, um, our peers and what they think of us um, versus is there something more enduring, um, more transcendent over conventionalism that is supposed to be embodied in this. And, 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 but I do think, you know, regardless of those open-ended questions, it does get at this idea that even within ourselves as individuals, um, we are deliberating. Um, we are figuring out who we are and how we want to see and approach the world. And the idea that we, both in the way that our conversations with each other and in democratic settings can help kind of shape those ideas, uh, there might be some ways in which we can use technologies to um, 
in that process of both, again, kind of self-development and, and self-understanding, but then also toward those um, political goals of democracy and collective decision-making, too. Thank you so much for sharing that with us uh, and for a really great discussion on a lot of uh, important and challenging topics. It's been a really rewarding discussion, Kristen. Thank you so much for having me. I think this episode turns on this theme of what happens when we delegate power. So uh, first, just to review, I think that Ted brought us, brought our attention to what uh, political philosophers and theorists mean when they talk about democracy and how democracy can be a decision making uh, a model of decision making and, and a way of relating to each other in various settings, uh, including in politics, um, but in various groups. And he also helped us return to questions, uh, policy questions and uh, ethical questions relating to autonomous vehicles, uh, as well as so it, more broadly thinking about how even if these are ultimately currently developed, um, by private actors have already impacted um, the public's lives uh, in very visceral ways. And so thinking about who is making these design choices um, and how they impact the community community at large and whether and to what extent and how the public and uh, can influence uh, and um, ensure safety um, for individuals and the community. Um, is essential to that process. Uh, and that is relevant for other technologies as well. And as much as uh, I really appreciate the potential drawbacks and concerns and safety issues, critical safety issues with uh, technologies, I also appreciate that Ted brought our attention to the ways that our artificial intelligence can still be used to support democracy as well, that it can enhance uh, human beings' judgment, that it might be used to help people reflect on and educate themselves and their political knowledge and judgment, that it could be used to facilitate um, the public's participation in the political process uh, and providing comments on lawmaking, particularly when it, because uh, citizens have such a limited amount of time. And I also appreciated uh, Ted's uh, articulation of a um, theory that he did not support, but that he articulated that other people might argue for, which is the idea of completely automating de democratic citizenship, that uh, we might be able to eliminate representative uh, institutions and replace them with these uh, democratic bots, um, these sort of artificial intelligence um, models uh, of our own preferences. And um, I, that's something I would love to talk about more and be interested in learning about more on the podcast. But for now, I wanted to just briefly note and tie it back into that theme of delegating power and what happens when we delegate power. Because it occurs to me that um, it's worth mentioning that the same type of questions and concerns that we, one might have when delegating power, whether to a private actor whether to a government, whether to 
um, a bot um, it, or, or representative institutions, uh, similar concerns will rise. So when a lot of the complaints about representative in institutions then get transformed um, into a complaint that one might have about um, artificial intelligence, or think of it this way, the same type of issues, the same type of concerns of accountability and responsibility, and what kind of design choices are being made um, behind the curtain, let's say, um, about our autonomous vehicles could similarly be uh, made and expressed in concern, uh, you have the same type of concerns about the design of the bots that would be used um, in this sort of um, alternative uh, approach to democratic politics. Uh, so the same type of issues with delegating power and uh, ensuring a democratic process works to enact our interest uh, true to what we want uh, remains. It just shifts from uh, representative institutions to the concerns with um, those developing the technologies used um, instead. So I look forward to talking about that, learning about that more in the future. And I hope that you'll join us then. But for now, thank you for listening. Till next time. <laughs>